How is public service media adapting to the digital age? For over 10 years, the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism has been assessing global media trends in their digital news report. Through an extensive survey done every year, they present a picture of the media ecosystem and analyse the way in which news consumption, news formats and trust in news are changing over time. In this episode, we hear from Nick Newman from the Reuters Institute and find out what the report has to say about public service media. We suspect there's a bit of a mismatch between that anti-public media rhetoric of politicians or the commercial press, for example, and the way that most people, this incredibly strong sort of silent majority who continue to value public media. What are the challenges that the digital age present to public media? This is the dilemma, really, within constrained budgets. How do you speak to two audiences that want things increasingly differently? And what are the opportunities? Obviously, we've seen many public media organisations leaning into TikTok and vertical video recently because that's where a lot of young people are spending their time. I'm Harry Locke, and from the Public Media Alliance, this is Media Uncovered. So my name is Nick Newman. I'm a senior research associate at the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. In most countries where public media is seen as independent, so in other words, there's independence from from sort of politicians and, and mechanisms to ensure that, then they are, in every case, you know, the most trusted organisations that we see still. And in terms of reach, they are obviously the most used in, in broadcast across uh, radio and television. And they're also one of the most highly used digitally. Um, I think the, 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 that's the good news. The bad news is that that reach, which obviously remains critical for the legitimacy of organisations that need to reach you know, all demographics, is hugely threatened by the shift to digital and that audience shift to, to consuming through digital media and social media. So because in almost every case, digital reach is lower than broadcast reach because there's more competition. And that obviously is particularly affecting the demographics. So younger people who use digital much more heavily and are exposed to all these different sources are much, much less likely to use public media sources. So so there's a sort of demographic time bomb, if you, if, if you see what I mean. And so I think in terms of reach, that's true, but also in terms of, of, we see it in terms of the data around personal importance, where we see younger people much less likely to value it because they're using it a lot less. I see. And, And so do you think part of the answer there is then adapting to the digital age or at least how how have public media adapted to the digital age and actually used digital technologies undergone a digital transformation in terms of an organization and and does that work i mean does that therefore give them access to those younger audiences who perhaps don't understand public media or or its value or, or necessarily trust it any more than any other media i think it's just a huge dilemma because public media can't afford to lose its traditional audience, which generally votes and puts pressure on politicians and doesn't want anything to change. Broadly, uh, older people still prefer television news or radio news or even printed newspapers. So, you know, the, the media they grew up with effectively. But public media has to really adapt to serve younger people with the same values, but in completely different formats. So this is a huge challenge. On the same budget or less, they essentially have to keep doing what they're doing and open up whole new ways of delivering delivering content. So, so this is the dilemma, really, you know, within constrained budgets. How do you speak to, to two audiences that want things increasingly differently? 
is this a a newfound phenomenon within the history of public service media, do you think? I mean, obviously, I suppose when TV first came on the scene, that that was, I suppose, a huge shift as well when when it wasn't just a, you weren't just a radio broadcaster, but now you're a television broadcaster as well. But it, it is the digital age and the fact that you now have two sets of audiences who are so different in terms of their consumption habits and the sort of content that they want to consume. Is that maybe more unique than ever before? Um, it, it's certainly happening at greater speed. I think this, you know, but but you're. I mean, it's a really important point that we've been through this before, and public media has proved incredibly adaptable, and and has embraced obviously, you know, starting its roots in radio and then embraced television and continued to fulfil its public mission, but in different ways. And you know, I think that's what broadly what we see public media struggling to do is is adapt but particularly to adapt to the speed of change which is happening at breakneck speed have you found in the research any discernible difference between the ways in which both public and private media are adapting to the digital age um i think i mean it used to be that uh, media companies looked pretty much like other media companies you know you had you had as you say the commercial media the commercial press and then you had broadcast and they were kind of separate. But obviously, those two worlds have, have, have mixed enormously. So, you know, you have print newspapers doing doing audio through podcasts or doing video and you have uh, public media doing text effectively. So everything's kind of got mixed up. Um, I think in terms of adaptability, again, there's sort of differences in what these media companies increasingly try to do. So it used to be that Printed newspapers were also trying to reach everybody or a very, very large group of people. But increasingly, those organizations are focusing on smaller, more discreet, more loyal, more educated audiences, often behind a paywall. And so there is much more of a sort of you know, fundamental difference on what uh, public media is trying to do and what um, uh, the, the, the commercial press is trying to do. Public media is still trying to serve all audiences. So in that sense, this sort of shift to this difficulty of attracting younger audience is a much bigger problem for public media than it is for commercial media because commercial media can continue to make money out of people who who are older through subscription or membership models so it's you know the the, the need to adapt particularly the need to, to adapt to younger audiences is particularly acute for those public media companies and, and would it be a safe argument to say that you know if we look just over the past year and what's happened with i suppose buzzfeed and vice news and and other sort of i suppose more digitally focused or you know at least sort of digital startups sort of news organizations that maybe do target the younger audiences actually that's a really difficult financial model as well so actually the younger audiences are the ones who perhaps have less access to sort of really reliable sources of journalism and and news and so actually there's maybe an argument to say public media needs to be that one to be able to fill that space to provide that for younger audiences yeah, I actually think that there is an opportunity for public media because the commercial models are really failing in lots of different ways. So, you know, the ones that are working are the ones that super serve rich, educated audiences with subscription models, you know, New York Times, for example, 10 million subscribers or whatever, but most of them are richer upmarket. And the question is, what happens to everyone else? How do they get reliable news and information? 
in an increasingly unreliable sort of social media landscape. And I think that that's that's potentially a huge part of the new mission and the gap that public media can continue to fill. But to do that, they absolutely have to adapt the formats and the language and they need to, you know, not just do things in broadcast or the way that they've always done things. They've got to really, really uh, lean into that, uh, those new behaviours. And what does the research suggest how they're doing that is it about adopting a digital first strategy or is it about just being on as many social media platforms as possible i mean i think it's it's a mixed picture it's hard to sort of generalize about that but i think that clearly shifting resources out of traditional broadcast into a range of digital outputs so that could be podcasts for example very very engaging for young people they uh, young people really sort of spend a lot of time listening to things uh, a lot of time out and about so that's a kind of format which is not necessarily about dumbing down or just creating short form video it's a format that I think is kind of a, a bit of a sweet spot, but I mean a range of other things. Yeah, really embracing digital form formats. Obviously, we've seen many public media organisations leading into TikTok and vertical video recently because that's where a lot of young people are spending their time. But I think it's 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 really a, a dual strategy. So, firstly, trying to build that direct connection, and so you see most media company, most public media companies who are trying to get people to consume, you know, one or two or three different products. So it might be the streaming service, it might be the news, it might be the sport, because if you do that, you're sort of really building up some of that loyalty. And and then for people who really are unlikely to come to your app because they're really living in that Netflix world and that Spotify world and that TikTok world, you have to take your content out and reformat it in different ways and try and try and leverage that brand in the platforms where where young people are spending most of their time, so TikTok, YouTube, etc., with, with an ultimate strategy to hopefully get them over to their own apps in the, in the long term as well, I suppose. Absolutely, and that's why issues like you know attribution. So if you are going to do TikTok, for example, how do you put hooks in to tell people about you know an app you might want to download, or how can you make sure that the branding is sufficiently clear so that there is credit that comes back to to the public media brand, because, you know, for many young people, you know, the internet and social media has flattened, uh, everything looks the same. So it's really hard to distinguish, this is a piece of reliable content. And this comes from a public media organisation, as opposed to, you know, uh, um, somebody in their bedroom. And I think this is, you know, this, this challenge of attribution, I think, is something that public media companies think about a lot. Sure, let alone when you then have the whole verification crisis is happening on one of the most you know, eminent social media platforms X as well. I suppose that that sort of muddies the waters even further as well. Sure. Yeah. And, 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 you know, that, that's, that's again, a you know, it's just a big dilemma for many media, public media companies, you know, should we be, should we be hoping that people are going to come to us to verify what's happening in Israel, Gaza, or should we take our verification techniques into platforms like X? And ultimately is that going to be brand damaging because people just think all content there is unreliable. There's no simple answer to this question, by the way, but you know, I think these are the trade-offs that, that, that people are making. I just have a quick question, just um, maybe going back to a point you made earlier, and I suppose it's just about sort of looking at the media ecosystem as a whole between private and public media, how almost the digital space now is a bit contested. And in Europe, especially, you have actually private media taking public media to the European Commission, I think, to basically say you need to limit 
how much content public media can put online because it's distorting the competition or distorting the market. Is that still unresolved? Do you think that that dilemma or is is it quite niche? I know it's only happened in a few places. Or do you think that's going to, as revenues go down for private media especially, do you think that that public media will increasingly become a target for them? Well, it it has done. I mean, uh, I think we see this in almost all of the countries around Europe right now, public media under pressure from politicians and partly they're under pressure from politicians because they're under pressure from private media lobbying politicians and private media is definitely having a hard time not in every country but in most countries uh, with a lot of layoffs and you know i think the real threat is obviously just the changes going on in technology and and from platforms but they certainly see public media as a threat because they are taking huge audiences, that they have a uh, fixed and reliable income, all the things that they don't. In many cases, you know, private media has had, you know, 20, 30% cut in advertising revenue just in one year. So, you know, it is a difficult position. But I, don't, you know, I, I also think there's an argument to say that having strong public media and strong co- commercial media go together. I mean, if you look at a country, you look at the Nordics, for example, you have very strong trust in all media, you have very high quality. And part of the reason you have that, I think, is you've got this ecosystem where you have strong public media and you have strong commercial media. But yeah, in 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 Germany, in in the UK, the private media is relentless at attacking public media, and and, and so are sort of political groups, particularly from the right, increasingly really targeting mainstream media and particularly public media in terms of their discourse. When we think about the the revenues that are going down, and I know many public media are, you know, maybe 100% publicly funded, or at least just have a small fraction that's from commercial revenue. But then when you look at, say, a broadcaster like RTE or CBC Radio Canada, that actually relies quite significantly on commercial revenues, that sort of opens them up to the the, the similar sorts of funding struggles. Obviously, they still have that sort of reliable, to an extent, reliable uh, income from, uh, from public sources. Yeah, and 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 the, and the criticism of, of private media, of course, is 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 now not just about audience, but it's also about taking a share of the commercial revenues. So, for those public broadcasters that have that mixed model, I, I think the attacks are often even even tougher. Yeah, and I just I just wonder how insulated they are. I, I mean, because of that government funding, are they totally insulated from the sort of the commercial revenue decline, or are they still quite affected by it? I mean, it's it's a good question, and obviously, you know, you have these very high fixed costs. It's very hard to to change that in in a, in a very sort of short period of time. And some of the commercial swings, as I say, have been have been huge in terms of the the shifts in the advertising market in the last few years. So, I think for public media that relies on commercial income, they, they've really uh, suffered. Or else, you have to go back to government for. For extra handouts, and that obviously increases the potential of political influence. So, so it, it's 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 not a not a happy situation. Sure, Nick. Last last few questions, and actually one just about I suppose you as an Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism as well. Just in the most recent digital news report, actually deciding to do an exclusive chapter on public service media. Can I just ask for the the, the sort of rationale behind that? What why did you think that was necessary to um, sort of focus exclusively on public service media? Well, we, we've we've done it before. Uh, I, I think it's because public media is critically important part of the ecosystems, as I say, in many in, in many countries. 
but also because of the times, you know, the legitimacy is under threat, the funding's under attack in many cases. There've been a whole load of, of scandals as well about, you know, how they spend their money or the role of presenters in in the social media world, for example, here in the UK. But I think we also we suspect there's a there's a bit of a mismatch between that sort of rhetoric, that anti-public media rhetoric of politicians um, or the commercial press, for example, and the way that most people feel about public media. And I, th- I think we find that in the data. You know, in most most cases, we find this this incredibly strong sort of silent majority who continue to value public media precisely because of the uh, track record that it has, the attempt at least uh, in a very complicated world to be fair and balance and present a range of views, which is what the majority, the vast majority of people want, we find again and again in our surveys. So it's an absolutely critical part of the media ecosystem and it's one that's under threat. So that's why we wanted to spotlight it. Sure. And, and and one of the principal findings from that uh, particular chapter, which I found so insightful and I'm sure will be being used by a number of public broadcasters as well to, you know, almost go, go on into their sort of soft lobbying as well uh, to government will we'll be saying, look how many people value us individually. Yes, but actually how many people recognize the value we have for society, perhaps even more so than on an individual basis. What what can public media actually take away from that and, and how can that be applied, I suppose, to their efforts to sort of demonstrate their worth and their value, do you think? I think they can take quite a lot of confidence on the one hand. It goes back to the sort of the good news and the bad news. So that, you know, it shows that that silent majority is there and that they they really value a lot of the the work around news and around, you know, trying to present the facts and contextualise it, you know, all of those things. I think that, you know, the challenging part of it is that, you know, and it's hard to generalise because it's very different in different countries, but in the majority of countries, you can you can really see that younger people value it less personally because they use it less personally, and they also therefore value it less for society. And so, you know, I think it's absolutely critical. That's why the younger audience thing is, is, is so important, because again, we find that people who use public media regularly, or they use, you know, two or three, you know, come back once a week, twice a week, three times a week, are way more likely to value it individually and for society. So in some way, getting those touch points for younger people um, and to building up those t- those touch points over time is going to be critical over a lifetime to, to maintain that sort of universal access and universal usage. Nick, just a final, maybe just, uh, it, it might actually be a bit of a down note, but uh, just a final note on, I suppose, the, the trajectory of trust in news that you've seen not just public i'm sort of talking about it just in in media as a whole here and over the course of the reuters institute doing the digital news report how how trust has declined but whether there are any signs of life trying to put a positive spin on it well trust has declined in some countries and not in others so so you know we often look at the nordics uh, finland for example uh, trust is as high as ever in in the media in general and in, and in public media. And again, I think it goes back to what I was saying around where you have an ecosystem where you have strong public media and you have strong commercial media, trust tends to be a bit higher. In countries like the UK, we've seen very significant declines in trust. I don't think that's to do with necessarily the quality of the journalism, either public or commercial. I think it's much more to do with we live in a very divisive society and divisive debates and people see things in the media they don't like and they often blame the messenger. And because the 
public broadcaster is so heavily used it's also most attacked and so what we what we've seen is this sort of very vocal minority increasingly distrusting what they see on the bbc for you know from the left and from the right and and this is a trend we see across europe so the the percentage of people who say that they don't trust public media has has increased uh, sort of year on year since we started doing this in, t- in 2018. And the percentage who say they trust has gone down as well. So the majority still trust, but the, those levels of distrust have increased. And that's that's driven by a lot of the criticism we see from politicians, from, uh, from social media, from ordinary people. And that's obviously a massive challenge. So I think public media really focusing on what they can do to... Um, to, to signal better that that the, the journalism they do is fair, balanced to um, to all people. I was going to say that certainly seems to be the approach the BBC is taking is to be almost just trying to ramp up their transparency over their methods to actually maybe just try and engage in a bit of media literacy education about you can trust us because we do it this way and, and here are all the processes that we go through. And I feel like maybe that side of things isn't maybe understood particularly by maybe younger generations as to actually how the news is made and whether that's the answer in to some extent of, of public broadcasters actually just being more transparent over their methods and their processes. Yeah, transparency is a, a, a huge thing. You know, I mean, most public broadcasters are putting a lot of effort into that. I think also just communication and listening. Uh, so, you know, the, the, again, the Scandinavians have done this really well, sort of really listening and getting closer to audiences. I think the, the, the problem with the sort of transparency and the verification thing is that it works very well with your existing audiences, but it doesn't necessarily work well with those people who essentially don't trust you at all. And in some cases, there's evidence it might even backfire. So I, th- I think, you know, the, the, there's a much bigger sort of societal problem about how you build trust, which goes into, you know, wider digital literacy initiatives, etc. Thanks very much to Nick Newman from the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism for appearing on this podcast. If you want to find out more about the Digital News Report, go to the Reuters Institute website. That's reutersinstitute.politics.ox.ac.uk. If you want to find out more about the Public Media Alliance, you can go to our website, publicmediaalliance.org. And we also have an exciting opportunity coming up for staff at PMA member organisations with our global grants. These are grants of up to £1,500 to fund international travel to another PMA member. As part of a learning or information exchange opportunity, there's just a few weeks left to apply for one of those. For more information and all the details on how you can apply, you can find the link in the podcast description. Thank you very much, as always, to Lucas Thompson and Rachel Still for the music. We'll be back with a new episode soon.